invite your attention this evening to two passages of Scripture, <clears throat> one very familiar when we think of the Lord's Supper, Luke chapter 22 and verse 14, Luke chapter 22, <clears throat> excuse me, and verse 14, and when the hour came, he, that is Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now back over to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Revelation, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This year, 2023, is about 29 days old. And so it wasn't very long ago that we completed yet another journey of over half a billion miles. And we have just begun that journey again. Our planet rotating on its axis at a rate of 1,040 miles per hour. That's how fast our globe is spinning, 1,040 miles per hour is right now hurtling through space at the staggering speed of 18.5 miles per second. That is 66,600 miles per hour. We orbit the sun, which is about 93, mile, bleh, 93 million miles away from us, roughly, and we complete the circle of the sun once a year. A total distance traveled of 583,416,000 miles. 
That's quite a trip. Anybody who is accustomed to taking the same long trip multiple times knows that it sometimes feels wearisome. You know what I mean? If you have family certain parts of the country and you are accustomed to taking that same trip repeatedly certain times of the year and it's as if when you begin that trip again, here we go again. You know you're going to pass through the same towns, the same cities, you're going to see the same landmarks that you've seen an umpteen number of times before, and it can get to the point where it feels rather wearisome. But this journey that we travel around the sun every year serves also as a beautiful reminder to us that we can begin again. We can start over. Our God is a creator. We know this. By his word, he created the stars and the planets, the universe, and everything that is in it. By his word, he made the earth and filled it with plants and animals and formed man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And when he was finished, he said, it is good. But sadly, we know it did not remain good. Humanity chose to question God and decide to play God for ourselves. And so God's good creation was ruined by humanity. And especially humanity itself, no longer in the condition that God intended to uh, intended us to be created, reflecting His glory, reflecting His image created to be creators, created to, uh, to rule over this good world that God has made for us. Humanity has become sinful and separated and soiled. We have been bound and broken and bruised and damaged and depraved and dirty. When we contemplate such a situation, it may seem that something in such a bad condition would be ready for nothing but the garbage heap. But God, who is creator, has a nature that is love, a nature that expresses itself in grace and in mercy. And so instead of tossing his creation into a cosmic dump where it may seem as if we belong, The God who made everything began to remake everything. And in Revelations 21, he tells us, I am making all things new. I see the reminder of recreation in the Lord's Supper. As we remember the Lord's Supper, we partake of the bread and the cup, we are reminded of the time that Jesus gathered with his disciples just before going to the cross, where he would be broken and battered and bruised, with a body marred beyond human recognition. I don't know how many of you have ever studied what actually took place physically during the process of flogging and crucifixion, but some people say, medical personnel who have studied this, 
<clears throat> say that even the, the process of the flogging that Jesus went through was so severe that very likely there was no more sound flesh remaining on his entire body. That's before he even went to the cross. And so the, the beauty and the goodness that was wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ, what the Bible tells us was the image of the invisible God was broken and battered and bruised, and all of that that would seem to be the undoing of the goodness and the beauty of God himself, the one that the disciples said we had hoped that this would be the one, this would be the Messiah. All of that was really just a new beginning, a new beginning. It was in this process of being broken and being battered, and being poured out, that God began making all things new. God is making all things new through salvation. That is the new birth. We read the verse to you from Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. says John writing, says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You see, we all understand this is what God wanted since the beginning of time, to live in fellowship and relationship with humanity. But mankind rejected God, and because of that rejection, we come into this world separated from God. And many of us at a young age learn to recognize that we are estranged from God. How many of you were first saved as just a young child, a young person? Yeah, quite, quite a number of you, yeah. And I remember, I still remember the time, I suppose I was probably four, maybe five years old, just, just before bed at night, somehow recognizing the need in myself, as I've quoted another preacher to you before, the realization that I wasn't born right the first time and needed to be born again. This is what Jesus spoke to Nicodemus about recorded in John chapter 3. And Jesus seemed surprised that Nicodemus did not understand the necessity of being born again. This is a picture of a man named George Wright. George Wright's life of crime started in 1962. On one fateful night, he and a friend walked into Walter Patterson's gas station and demanded money. <clears throat> when the man objected, they beat the older man until Walter finally gave up all the cash he had, $70 in crumpled bills. George's buddy shot Walter at point-blank range. Then after the robbery <clears throat> and the shooting, George had a snack and played a game with his friend, and just went on living as if nothing had happened. George was eventually arrested and sentenced to 15 to 30 years in prison. That was too long for George to accept, and so 
he connected with a few other of the prisoners and they decided they would break out of prison, which they successfully did. They hotwired the warden's car and used that as a means of escape. And he stayed under the radar until July 31st of 1972 when he hijacked a plane heading from Detroit to Miami and eventually escaped to Algeria. From Algeria, he began a worldwide fugitive odyssey that took him to Germany, France, New Guinea, and finally he ended up in Portugal. Along the way, George changed his name, and somewhere in the years between then and the more recent past, George somehow became a different man. He changed his name and he said, I've asked God to forgive me and I think God has forgiven me, but the law says other things. George, who had, as I said, changed his name to Jorge, married, had children, joined the church and got baptized. He turned from crime and began working with his hands to provide for his family. He cleaned graffiti from public places, public walls in Lisbon, Portugal. He helped to uh, renovate an outreach center for HIV-positive children. He served dinners for homeless people, planted public flower gardens. He raised two healthy, happy children and grew into a senior citizen. And in the 40 years of his hiding, he didn't do one single thing to add to his crimes, not even a parking ticket. On September 26, 2011, the law finally caught up with George Wright in the form of six Portuguese policemen. They were acting on an Interpol warrant issued by the United States. They found George Wright, but they arrested Jose Luis Jorge dos Santos the name under which George had been living. Portugal eventually denied the United States' attempt to have George extradited, but during the hearings, the central issue was not whether they'd arrested the right man, but whether they had arrested the same man. And the question they were asking was actually this, can a person actually truly change? Well, friends, we know the answer to that question in our own lives, and George, it seems, is a living testimony of that reality, that a person can turn from a life of sin, no matter how deep or how far it's gone, they can come to Jesus Christ and experience a new birth to be actually born again, a new creation in Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we read these words, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. 
having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Friends, God is making all things new through salvation, through the new birth. He is also making all things new through sanctification. That is a new life, a new life. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1 and the following verses, the Apostle Paul writes this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Set your affections on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. In other words, a new birth is wonderful, and thank God for it, but a new birth is simply the beginning of a new life, and it is God's plan for every person that the new birth is demonstrated through new life and new living. Sanctification begins with the new birth. Wesleyans have always believed this. It is called initial sanctification. The sanctification continues through life as we walk with God, as we walk in the light, as we walk in obedience. We are changed, we are shaped, and our righteousness is more than simply an imputed righteousness. Thank God for imputed righteousness where the righteousness of Christ is credited to our account. But it is more than that. It is an imparted righteousness where God, for Christ's sake, makes us actually into the image of Jesus Christ, where we begin more and more to reflect Jesus. And then as we continue, God wants to do more. As my, uh, one of my professors at God's Bible School, wonderful uh, professor of church history, Larry Smith, would uh, quote some of the uh, uh, Wesleyan and Methodist pastors of years gone by and would say often that God can do more with sin than just forgive it. That God wants to go beyond and cleanse and purify our hearts. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 and 24, And the very God of peace sanctify you through and through. Amen. Entire sanctification is that moment in the life of the Christian when realizing that perhaps, <clears throat> I, I suppose, not I suppose, I believe, I've, I've learned that Different, of, uh, different ones of us experience this reality in different ways. The, the realization or the understanding of need comes through different means, through different channels. Uh, for some, it may be the presence of a besetting sin, something that continually we stumble over. For others, it may be uh, this realization that there's a, a wrestling for control. Because you see, the presence of the original sin nature in our hearts manifests itself most clearly through self-centeredness. So however it is we come to that realization, we, we understand that there is a need for us to make a full consecration, a full surrender of ourselves to God. 
According to Romans, uh, according to Romans 12, verse 1, the words of the Apostle Paul, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. I am privileged and honored to be a part of our district uh, ministerial credentials board where once or twice a year we divide into committees and all of the, the young people and sometimes not always young people, those that are candidates for district preacher's license and some that are candidates for ordination come before and they get questioned based on their course of study and where they're at in the course of study and and uh, it, it was a privilege to talk to one young lady not too long ago uh, as she was pursuing uh, ordination eventually and uh, to to drill her just a little bit and I was able to recognize there were a few things that she was unclear about and and to talk to her about the doctrine of entire sanctification and, and how the Bible presents it and how it is taught. And God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, cleanses our hearts. And we understand this is not something that makes us perfect in all of our actions. We're still prone to human error and failure and mistake. It does not remove us from the possibility of temptation, but it does perfect the love and the motive of our hearts towards God. As we read in Hebrews Chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent or the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. You see, friends, in our salvation, we identify ourselves with the new birth and, and the life that comes through Jesus Christ. And in entire sanctification, we identify with Jesus Christ in his death. And we lay down our lives as a sacrificial offering. God is making all things new through sanctification. Finally, this evening, God is making all things new through glorification. That is, we are anticipating a new heaven and a new earth. If I could read to you again from Second Peter. <clears throat> That's a typo. should be Second Peter chapter 3. Verses 10 through 13, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. His Italian mother named him after the gospel writer Mark in the hopes that he too would tell the gospel truth. 
but 13th century Europeans found it impossible to believe Mark's tales of faraway lands. He claimed that when he was only 17, he took an epic journey lasting a quarter of a century, taking him across the steppes of Russia, the rugged mountains of Afghanistan, the wastelands of Persia, and over the top of the world through the Himalayas. He was the first European to enter China, and through an amazing set of circumstances, he became a favorite of the most powerful ruler on planet Earth at that time, the Kublai Khan. Mark saw cities that made European capitals look like roadside villages. The Khan's palace itself dwarfed the largest castles and cathedrals in Europe. It was so massive that its banquet room alone could seat 6,000 diners at one time, each one eating from a plate of solid gold. Mark saw the world's first paper money and marveled at the explosive power of gunpowder. It would be the 18th century before Europe would manufacture as much steel as China was producing at this time in the year 1267. Mark became the first Italian to taste the wonderful Chinese culinary invention, pasta. He traveled to places no European would see for another 500 years. And after serving Kublai Khan for 17 years, Mark began his journey home to Venice, loaded down with gold and silk and spices. When he arrived home, the people that he spoke with dismissed his stories of a mythical land called China. His family priest rebuked him for spinning lies. On his deathbed, his family, his friend, and his priest begged him to recant his tales of China because they knew he was lying. But setting his jaw and gasping for breath, Mark spoke his final words and said, I have not even told you half of what I saw. Through 13th century, though 13th century Europeans rejected his stories as the tales of a liar or a lunatic, history has proven the truthfulness behind the book that he wrote about his adventures, the travels of Marco Polo. 1,300 years before Marco Polo wrote about China, another man, the Apostle John, went on an amazing journey to heaven itself. And at times... Perhaps we jaded postmoderns shake our heads in disbelief at the things we read in the Bible about John's vision and other biblical witnesses to the glory of heaven and the wonderful promise of the new heaven and the new earth that's coming. But the biblical writers who describe heaven to us no doubt would declare to us in the words of Marco Polo, I have not even told you half of what I saw. We are reminded... In the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He come. And as we receive the bread and cup, we are reminded not only of what Jesus did for us on the cross to make possible for us a new life, a new birth, but we're also reminded of what is to come, a new heaven. And a, new birth, and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. 